we have what we need if we share what we have. Any group of four or five, if you go into a group and you ask people to list one of their key needs, you almost always find someone in the same group who can provide for that need or someone has a family member or close friend who can provide it. The old world is ending. And we have the opportunity to rethink everything. This is a show about the systemic problems in our world. And the real solutions we have today. To transition from an apocalyptic storm of war, scarcity, and ecological collapse. To create an abundantly advanced collaborative society. That sustains all life. You may think it's an impossible dream. But the alternative is an inevitable nightmare. We're your hosts, Matt Holton, Amanda Smith, and Zachary Marlowe. And together, we can move past this economic absurdity and come together to actualize our collective potential to create something completely new. We are Mindless Society. Mutual motherfucking aid. Actually, no, I can't start the, I can't <laughs> say the a curse word in the first 30 seconds or I'll be demonetized. Uh, we're demonetized anyway. Fuck it. Okay. Uh, am I still going? Are we rolling? Fuck money. Okay. So <laughs> there we go. Start with that. <laughs> in a world where everything costs money and people like us come out and say, we could live without money. People are always asking this question like, oh, how could we do that? How could we live without money? How could we do this? And, and how would we do this? And the answer is embarrassingly simple. Mutual aid. That's how people have done it for the majority of human existence, even within money. It's really still how most things get done, and without it, the whole world would collapse. So that's the topic of today's episode, and I think we've got the best person that I know personally, and maybe one of the best people on the planet, somebody I met on the last beautiful odyssey uh, in Ljubljana in Slovenia, in an amazing place, on a crazy adventure. Uh, I met Stephanie Rierich, who is really one of the, if not the originator of the term mutual aid networks. Of course, mutual aid is a term that, that Peter Kropotkin, anarchist thinker, created you know, way back when. But the term mutual aid networks that that's proliferates this sphere was popularized, or at least Stephanie's one of the cool kids who started using it first. So Stephanie, what does that mean, mutual aid? And what is a mutual aid network? Thank you. Uh, mutual aid simply means what it sounds like. We support each other and help each other out. And our version of mutual aid networks is a way that we take mutual aid, plain and simple, helping each other out based on how families and intact communities and every living organism and every ecosystem and every planetary system, um, everything Every natural system works via mutual aid and symbiosis of uh, mutually beneficial relationships. And so what we do in our version of mutual aid networks is look at tried and true ways of doing that, of sharing and exchanging time and uh, doing other forms of mutual credit like the ancient Sumerians did. Um, and then also connecting that with more recent innovations um, uh, in web technology, uh, different understandings of communications, peer-to-peer -peer workflows, cooperative stewardship and ownership. We just connect these things together and work on 
arranging them in a deliberate way. So our economy flows in ways that benefit us and our families and our communities, our watersheds, our planet, um, our fellow living beings on this earth. So we're just taking models that have happened and we're tweaking them with some deliberateness. I think it's really important to realize the ways that our economy has evolved or devolved. Uh, some some ways that the dominant economy have evolved have just been through happenstance. Some have been through malice. Um, and we're all actors in the economy, whether we feel like it or not. A lot of times we feel like the economy is something that's done to us, but we realize we are actors in shaping the economy and we can act with more deliberateness and really learn and really have a values basis about creating an economy that serves us rather than the other way around. And a key reason that we chose to use the term mutual aid networks, besides the fact that it just describes what we're doing, because um, we are creating explicitly creating networks of people and practice, creating networks of real trust in, an, in, in a given community of place or of practice, and then creating networks of trust in between those networks because we're exchanging with uh, values basis and we're exchanging in a fair way and, and built on all of our strengths and matching different strengths with different needs. Um, but a reason we chose Mutual Aid Network is we like the acronym MAN uh, because of the American phrase, working for the man. We want to co-opt the economy. The way the dominant economy tends to co-opt cooperative efforts and sharing efforts, we're flipping that around and we're going to co-opt the dominant economy. And we're going to create a situation where you're working for the man and doing everything that makes you a happy, healthy human and a happy, healthy community. So we're becoming the new, the man. Um, and that's that's a reason we wanted to adopt that and just play around with that uh, and take over that. Oh, I got to say, uh, that really uh, brings the phrase stick it to the man into perspective. <laughs> like, love that so much. And I also like that you pointed out uh, that you all are, you know, going all the way back um, in history and and borrowing from the ancient Sumerians uh, way of life and marrying it with um, modern day technology and practices. That's so important to point out because what I do run across uh, so often uh, when I talk about exchange, barter, gift economy, sharing, cooperatives, collaboration, all that jazz, people automatically go to a primitive place in their minds. They're like, oh, we don't want to digress, though. We don't want to go backwards. <laughs> we don't want to be poor beggars that are trying to trade um, eggs for bread or something. But I think what we fail to realize so often is that that is not primitive in contrast to the way we live today, where we literally have enough resources to meet everyone's needs abundantly, but we hold it ransom behind a paywall and other barriers of access, and we call it civilized and advanced. Okay, that's 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 primitive. That's primitive thinking. But we won't go down that rabbit hole right now. Um, I don't have an aimed question for you yet because I feel like a student today, as I often do on these podcasts. Um, I unfortunately have not had time to learn a whole lot about the work that you have done and do, but I am so excited to do that today. Uh, so please continue, expound, tell us all the wonderful things that you have helped to, uh, to, to create and realize. And from that, I hope to borrow and integrate it into my own work here in Berea, Kentucky with Appalachian Community Meal and Mutual Aid Project, uh, which we just celebrated 
celebrated the one year anniversary of yesterday. So this is such a, a, a cherry on top of the ice cream for me the day after to get to speak with you of all people. Oh, beautiful. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, or anniversary. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> That's great. So actually, uh, when you were talking about um, primitive living, <laughs> primitive living through mutual aid, it's it's uh, it's funny that that's that that's part of the narrative, and I think that's a big part of um, sort of the forces at play that that benefit from uh, the current setup where a few people, really relatively few people have decided that they own everything and they enforce that through force and also through renting the money to us uh, to be able to access what we need. And um, one of the reasons I got into focusing on different forms of exchange is I read a book by Bernard Leotard called The Future of Money. And he talks about um, during the times that the great cathedrals were were built, um, money was operating under different terms where there was negative interest. So you would your money would lose its value if you were hanging on to it. So then that created an incentive for people to spend money um, to build big, long-term, beautiful things with good craftsmanship um, to invest in maintenance before it was required, before things were falling apart. So in other words, the opposite of planned obsolescence. Exactly. <laughs> in some ways, yeah. And utilitarian. Real quick, I just want to... Marlo, yes. No, I want to pick up on a really quick thing you just said there that is just a Stephanie Sledgehammer's blow. It's so simple that we are renting money from <laughs> the, biz, the, the, the bankers. We are renting money. We don't have it. It's credit that we are renting that they create out of nothing, out of debt, out of loans. They don't even need the, the reserves in them to lend them out. The whole fractional reserve thing is a, a ghost. They are creating money with the push of a button, and we are renting it from them at interest, at a cost. So it's like, it's just a really expensive, stupid way of doing things. And so yeah. the beauty of like the mutual aid networks and all the different forms of optionality, which is a different connotation in, in capitalism of like, oh, optionality is the ability to have money, and then you can turn that into all kinds of things. But if the only way to get what you need is through money, there is no optionality. You have no option. So what your work is doing and what we explored in the film for the film and all these other things that I've been able to sort of dip into the mutual credit, the time banking, the cooperatives, the platform cooperatives, all these new things are other ways for us to be able to meet our needs without money. How novel, how, how brilliant. Can you, can you explain some of those different ways? Yes, absolutely. So we were born out of time banking. Um, so time banking, oops, uh, time banking is where we exchange time instead of money. So it's a type of mutual credit. I mentioned how the ancient Sumerians uh, operated, but basically you're just logging. Um, when, when I need some work done, if you are able and willing to do it for me, you do the work and you get credits for that work. So in time banking, you would do three hours of work, you would have three hours worth of credit in your account, and I would subtract three hours of credit from my account. Um, And the beauty of it is it's created whenever you need it, whenever two people want to engage in a transaction, you create the credit. Another beauty of it is when 
I've, uh, when you've earned the credits, you can spend them with anybody else. I don't have to be, just because you did a service for me doesn't mean I have to have the thing that you want. Um, then you can go to the whole network and you can spend the credits that you earned. So you can, um, for example, I've earned hours teaching piano lessons and I've spent hours having someone make a music video for me. I've had someone do shopping for me. Um, I earned hours helping do mock interviews for the Urban League when they were helping people build their job skills. So um, it's a simple way to just uh, create and mark an exchange. And in a time bank, another aspect of it that's important in any m mutual credit system and mutual aid network, a key piece is just being able to find each other and being able to have a place where we can say what, what our skills and talents are and what our needs are. So just that information system that these are people who are willing and available to participate in this network and here's what they can do. That's a huge key to unlock all this potential and all this this natural wealth that we possess. And then in time banking, everyone's time is valued equally. We don't put a price on our time. We consider, especially in our version of mutual aid networks, um, and, and our network is called Humans, Humans United and Mutual Aid Networks. It's a way we can differentiate um, our approach and be explicit about creating systemic versions of, or systemic forms of mutual aid because there are a variety of approaches to mutual aid networks. So we are very explicitly about creating a mutual aid-based economy or creating a neighborly global economy. Um, so in our version of mutual aid networks, we really consider time banking to be uh, great for catalyzing and valuing and rewarding the types of work that are infinitely abundant. Where uh, And I consider those to be care, number one. Caregiving is infinitely abundant. Um, creativity community work, civic engagement, a lot of things that can be made more abundant through cooperation. So we really treat time banking as very abundant and very values-based. It's based on everyone has something to give. Everyone has offers and needs. We Everyone needs reciprocity, that community ties are essential, that everyone deserves respect, and that all work is valuable. And that's a really key piece of it. Um, so if someone joins a time bank or starts time banking, becomes part of a mutual aid network, and they join right when they have broken their hip because they need help, we give them that help. They can spend the hours, as many hours as they of credit as they need to get the help they need, and they give back when they're able to give back. Um, so it's a values basis where we are all voluntarily engaging in that network. So that's a key piece. Um, and then we also really work on building the commons, really work on building our sharing muscle. And that can be something as simple as someone has a washer and dryer that they make available to the community. Here we grow shared gardens. We share the work, we share the produce, we share the land. Um, and that's just among people who have underused yards and things like that and want to contribute in, into the gardens. Um, uh, and it can also be complicated things like maker spaces where you have intensive equipment and provide training to people and have rules under which people can access equipment and, and other kinds of infra infrastructure in a maker space. So there's the whole sharing 
piece and really creating our ability to create and steward commons together more. Oh, well, my gears are turning and I'm trying to further understand uh, what seems like another marrying of two um, otherwise um, separate elements of this movement. Uh, Because in my mind, uh, admittedly, I had kind of seen transactional and reciprocal uh, engagements as completely opposite black and white. But it sounds like you uh, and what you're doing there is creating an incentive for people to form reciprocal relationships through the structure of this time banking, although it does have a transactional element to it. And immediately I'm like, oh, no, that sounds like transactional relationships. That sounds like obligations. That sounds like someone's going to sign up and end up having to do something they may not have the capacity to or want to or whatnot. But I'm sure there's so much more to it that I don't know and understand yet. But do you mind to speak on just a little bit on that distinction between reciprocal and transactional and and elaborate on how you are uh, making this a success story by by using the two simultaneously. Yes. um, And actually, and then we go farther toward the money side and the transactional side too, because we also pool money and share it um, via something that we call a common fund. We also are using other forms of mutual credit that can be used in businesses. So our aim is recognize where we are and what people need and uh, work to build a bridge from here to where we want to go. So um, a big reason that we created this form of mutual aid networks is to fill in the pieces. And, and uh, so I was running a time bank. When I, when I read the book, The Future of Money, I chose to start a time bank as the first step into this more integrated cooperative economy that I knew I wanted to work toward. And the reason I started with time banking is because I saw that as really filling a key piece and filling the biggest gap in economic life that we have, which is the complete devaluation of the core economy of care and creativity and community work. So time banking could lift that up and and make it visible and help create a sort of value flow in that area. And one of the things that I was disturbed about is the, uh, the transactional nature and that the whole system, if you start a time bank, the whole system depends on this transactional nature. One of the things that happens in time banks um, always is people number one, people are reluctant to record their hours a lot of times. Um, And number two, even more than that, people develop relationships and just start to share. And um, in a time bank structure, when you set up as a time, a time bank as a nonprofit, that's a problem because then they're not logging their hours and then you can't report it and you can't get the funding and stuff. And that's, so early on, I realized a world in which that's a, if that's a problem, that's a problem. Right. If, if it's a problem that people develop relationships and start sharing, then we're not organized properly, um, right. which we kind of always realized that, that it wasn't really the right, the right values aligned model to have a nonprofit to support something like time banking. So that's one of the reasons that we wanted to connect it with especially commons building and sharing and with cooperative stewardship. Um, 
And one of the reasons that we wanted to connect it also with some of the other more competitive forms of exchange, like price-based mutual credit or things involving money, um, because there are places, especially, well, so what we're trying to, what we are doing is teasing out the different economic functions that need to be filled and in my view, competition isn't something to eliminate entirely, but something to put into different contexts. So, for example, if there's something that uh, difficult to obtain, a very finite kind of resource, like maybe jet fuel or something like that, or a corner lot in a neighborhood, it makes sense to have some competition for scarce resources. Um, and that's what we have been aiming to do in our version of mutual aid networks is really recognize the where things are scarce appropriately, where things are scarce and can be made more abundant through more abundant means of exchange and where things are appropriately abundant and how we exchange in those contexts. Um, and ultimately, uh, as I mentioned, we want to co-opt business as usual and pull it into a more sociable realm and build those forms of real trust that that go very quickly toward people not recording time, but what people or other forms of credits and really outright sharing. But what people need to be able to do is quantify enough and get enough experience to really feel that their needs can be met in this way is really the essential thing. And when we can get there without accounting, I'm, I'm really ready for that because I don't like the accounting part and it quickly falls away. Oh, that makes two of us. I hate the math and the bookkeeping. <laughs> and, and I love that you see the, uh, the value and the trajectory that we're, we're heading in, uh, you know, to get rid of all of that. Um, I just want to clarify when you say, and when it makes sense to have competition, I'm assuming you mean um, competition in the sense that the outcome is utilitarian as possible. It's as optimal as possible, not competition in the sense that whoever with the most affluence, whoever with the most money or whoever knows the right people ends up with the corner lot. Exactly. Exactly. And yes, a lot of dynamics need to change, but this is for me, uh, participating in mutual aid is something that, helps bring about that change in people and how they relate to themselves and to each other. And because it is very values-based, because it is cooperatively governed and stewarded, there are clear rights and responsibilities. There are clear expectations about how people interact with one another that are based in values. Wonderful. Thank you. So, for, yeah, for two, two things there. One, the sort of metaphor of the bridge is you know resounding and we filmed at the three the famous three bridges in the cutest little <laughs> fucking town in the world ljubljana <laughs> and Slovenia, former yugoslavia um yeah it's a bridge it's training wheels it's like people most people can't really imagine doing things without accounting or trusting people or going out on the limb and saying like all right i'm gonna mow your lawn you better get me back you know Whereas you you pretty quickly figure out, oh, okay, yeah, that's the, that's one of the most powerful things I think that Kate said about the an, another uh, time banker, mutual aid networker that we met. She said um, that their feast, that they had too much produce and they started to have a big meal. And it was like just a, a thing that it, it emerged very organically in the way that 
organically in the way that the Appalachian Community Meal did, where people started to come together and give away their excess. And it brought people together, the cascading, unexpected effect Mm. of the companion planting of human beings was yeah. the relationship I love that term that companion plant that I'm the, still that. that the mayor could be sitting next to the homeless person you know somebody could be sitting next to you know somebody with an idea could be sitting next to somebody with the money to execute it you know somebody with a guitar could be sitting next to somebody with a drum kit you know people meet each other and the relationship is formed and it all becomes an excuse for a relationship so the time banking isn't just about us obsessively and I, I think neurotically because we have a neurotic obsession with making sure everything is equal and everybody's square. And this is just not how humans were for the majority of existence. My favorite, favorite, favorite anecdote in the entirety of David Graeber's whole massive body of anecdotes is from debt, the first 5,000 years. And it's this, it's this, um, this anthropologist is in the Nordic or the North pole or something, or he's, he's in, somewhere really cold and snowy and, and he fails at the hunt and he comes back to his igloo and there's like a hundred hundreds of pounds of walrus meat. And he's like, Whoa, thank you. He sees this guy walking away and he's like, don't thank me where I come from. We're human. We help each other. He's like, what I get today, you may get tomorrow. And he's like, he says this the hardest line ever. He's like, where I come from, we say by whips, one makes dogs and by uh, rewards, one makes slaves. So it's like, it, 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 and he, said, he basically says that, that many human beings throughout history remarked not the ability to calculate and count and say you owe me and I owe you as what humanizes us, as, as what makes us human. What makes us human is to not do that, is to say, I got you. You got me. We'll, we'll sort it out. It'll sort itself out. And that's the beauty of this sort of relationship-based economy that we are getting back to. As somebody said on the other day on a call, it's not that we're trying to go beyond money. We're trying to go back home to what was before money, to oh, just what was man. obvious, to what obviously works. And with all our technology and fancy gizmos and gadgets and networks, like we could just do it so much better, so much easier. I think that's one of the uh, a surprising, well, I guess a unsurprising paradox is I think that people really are starved for this and are really recognizing that they want something different. But now there's some sort of perception out there that we're waiting for some technological breakthrough, that we need some blockchain thing, that we need some new platform. And having been, I've been working in this realm actually since for uh, since about 1995 when I helped start a different local currency and uh, we have what we need. And I think this is part of it's by design. To, uh, it's, it's one of the reasons our economy is so deliberately obtuse. It's deliberately obscured. We all think we don't understand it. And partly because the dominant economy isn't actually understandable. It's just a big disaster. I think we should look away um, and realize we really have what we need. If we share what we have, if we recognize what we have and, um, and it's not about the technology, some, some good technology can really help make it easy. And we're working on that. We have some really great, exciting things. In fact, right from here, I'm going to a very exciting meeting about how we can connect up some different tech threads and really create a cool, a cool system. And 
it's really the networking with people. And it's really, I think that's what people are afraid of. And and to be honest, that I was afraid of that and, and really averse to that. When I went to start the Time Bank, I thought I'd like bring the system here, turn it on and people would run with it. And it doesn't happen that way because it's a different habit that we need to get into. And it's social. And I think people are afraid to talk to their neighbors and invite people to come together and start talking and, and doing stuff. But that is what's required. And so that's the Humans United and Mutual Aid Networks Cooperative. We're really about holding each other's hand to do that stuff. So we provide an infrastructure. We are a co-op. We encourage you to join. You can be part of our marketplace and use all these forms of exchange in this global community. You can be a sister site or a partner, and we support you in whatever way you need. And we're in a network of mutual support. So you also support all of us and the other people in the network. And we just really help each other to build the skills to do this stuff and to provide the moral support and inspire each other and share knowledge and tools from our projects, share learning um, from our successes and from our failures. And then we also provide open source um, tech tools and help you use them. But really the key is people stepping a little bit more outside of their comfort zone and stepping a little bit more outside and, and we help and we become part of each other's team to do that. And it's that simple and that complicated. And, and that's really all it is. We need to do things differently. Real quick, real quick. The comfort zone. What a, <laughs> what a horrible place. The comfort zone is the blast zone <laughs> of like the nuclear annihilation of just apathy ending the world, you know? And it's, it's not like, it's not comfortable there. It's constant anxiety and, and stress it's like being a hostage in your own life, you know, to be like, I have to be in control of everything. I, I can't go out beyond. Don't make eye contact. Don't talk to that person. It's like, it's the discomfort zone. You know, it's like, um, oh, I was on, I was doing ketamine therapy. Um, cause went through a whole depressive spiral last year. And, um, <laughs> my, uh, practitioner in, in this, office you know i'm like in a chair getting dosed up first thing she said was like there's gonna be a trip and i'm like lady i know what that is um <laughs> yeah she's like um I, she bumped me up because i was gonna miss a week and, and i just went into this crazy meditative state where like i disappeared and the room disappeared and there was no time or death and i all the only thing in my brain was just like there is only god and i was like oh shit and i came back because one of the nurses was was like uh, adjusting my iv and I like spoke to her as if I was the Buddha or something. Like everything was so clear and precise. It was crazy. And I was like, have you ever done this drug? And she was like, no, I'm scared. I was like, what are you, what are you afraid of? And she said, I'm afraid of losing control. And it was like, it just came out of me. It was like, if you're perpetually afraid of losing control and we accept and we know we are never in control of this chaotic universe, you guarantee that you are never comfortable because you will never be in control. And the next so week, true. like the doctor is like, I don't know what you said to her, but she started doing ketamine. All right. That's awesome. That's awesome. And a wonderful realization to have. I, I had that through um, painful experiences and deep meditation myself, um, but without the drugs. But I'm glad you shared that because at, um, it, it's something that we all have to come to terms with. And, and then uh, the next step, I think, is... Um, being okay with our vulnerability, accepting that we are vulnerable and we aren't in control per se of so many things, but we have agency over our own lives more than we know. And so I'm going to try 
to make a stab at tying that in to a couple of things that you said there, Stephanie, um, to me, they sound like two sides of the same coin, an issue in which, like you said, people are waiting on the advent of a new technology, yet another thing, something that's going to be like a savior come in and make everything right and set everything straight and just make the world this utopia that we all want it to be. And then you also... Um, touched on how it can be hard to get people outside of their comfort zone, get them to go outside of their box, their tangible box, their house, their cubicle or whatever, and actually form connections and meet other people. Um, I won't, I won't spend a lot of time talking about Appalachian Community Mill. We're here to talk about you, but in my lived experience with my first stab at organizing people, that was the thing that I recognized the most. Two things, um, kind of like uh, with Money and Society, we get a lot of inquiries. Well, where is it? I want to move in today. We get a lot of this, like, I want to call it cognitive dissonance, where people just assume that it's it's an oasis already built and ready to move in. And they like, not not to not to criticize these these people per se and say, like, none of them are willing to put in the labor, but there's some something broke up there. So, and I've been a, uh, guilty of it too, where it's like, oh, oh, I heard about this ego village or something. I just want to move in. And I like skip all the steps to actually creating it. You know, it's like we forget that we have to create the world we want to live in because of the uh, programming and indoctrination that tells us there is a hierarchy that's responsible for that. And that is such a paradox. That is such um, uh, a toxic paradigm because the hierarchy doesn't do anything but destroy the world we're living in. Uh, but that's another rabbit hole. But now to circle it back around, you have people that are expecting it to just be built and ready to move in. And then you have those same people and more, uh, more, more or less um, that, that are the ones who don't want to venture out and socialize, make connections and, and, um, and it, I guess, explore failure and, you know, ups and downs that are entailed, um, and, and building this world that we want to live in. You know, people are very um, commonly like set back by uh, the notion that they'll have to put in labor and it's not, it's, does it doesn't come with a guaranteed result. I think that's probably also a reason why we are um, experiencing such a white knuckle clinging to the world that we live in right now. Transactions have guaranteed results, but we're not seeing the transaction for what it actually is, it falls grossly short of actually meeting our need, the transactional nature of our economy, whereas reciprocal uh, based economy would abundantly meet our needs. Marlo, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I, I was actually going to say we're at we're at about halfway point today. It's going to be a little bit of a short yeah. episode, but this is going to be the first of multiple episodes, I'm sure. I think actually it would be really cool if, Amanda, you did describe in an overview your project and Stephanie can give her uh, input on how to set up a time bank or how to set up a mutual credit system or how to actually do this. I think by well, now, I think once this... But now the here's we set it up perfectly for where the rubber hits the road. How do you do it? Right on, right on. And I'm okay with that if you are Stephanie. We don't want to put you on the spot. Um, but I would be so honored to get your critique and input. Um, so about a year ago, um, with some funding from a very nice guy named Hank, who represents the Humanist Mutual Aid Network, um, uh, they they typically fund uh, projects all over the world. But then be, uh, had an interest in the Appalachians, so he reached out to me from Northern California, and he said, "What can you do with a little money over there? We would like to help what we can." Um, and I had already noticed that we have a big food scarcity problem around here. 
uh, it, it's pretty bad. Um, and uh, at, like most rural areas, and especially in Appalachia, we have a couple of churches that try to help, and we have one little food bank. Um, and they do a phenomenal job with the resources that they have, don't get me wrong. Um, but, and also uh, typical of these small rural, you know, these rural areas in the Appalachian Mountains, um, you have to go to a place that is religiously affiliated, or you have to be a part of some faction. You have to, you know, um, be be wearing or giving off some kind of signal, like who you voted for, or, you know, just what economy you support and all this jazz. Uh, so we wanted to create um, a no barrier access to uh, one of our most common ground needs, that being food. Um, and then from there, start building a mutual aid network, hyper-local, so that the people in this town and in this county can start getting their needs met. And through that, as I think you touched on a little earlier, experience what it is to realize your own agency and your own power and, and what it is to exercise that and in collaboration with your neighbors, with other people that live around you. And so all of that dials down into... Um, encouraging people to uh, practice community and collaboration through the lens of mutual aid. But mutual aid is a term that can, that um, it tends to be vilified, especially in areas that are very Republican and conservative. It's the red scare, it's communism, it's all this jazz, you know? Uh, so, so we, we took it back to the root of Appalachia and touched on, you know, like Marlo was saying that this is how people have lived for most of human existence. It just got mutated and relabeled and rebranded and all these things by all these different groups. But at the core, it's simply people showing up with the courage to accept that they are vulnerable in this world and that we are codependent, we are interdependent, and that we are each other's most valuable resource and that we can exist abundantly if we choose to share. And share is sharing is not synonymous with scarcity. That's another thing I run into a lot. But I'll wrap it all up to say a year later, what we've managed to do so far is feed, <clears throat> excuse me, is uh, serve upwards of a thousand plates of food. Um, by serving free meals uh, from month to month. And on top of that, we have developed, we've uh, evolved into a pop-up resource hub because we also, as we began our journey and went along, noticed that there are some groups and organizations spread about the county and much wider Um they're all very fractured and, and some of them obscured. And so few people tended to know about these resources when we encounter people in need. So I started inviting them is because my job in the, in the whole thing is to be like a networker and like the program director or whatever. So I would start inviting these people to our dinners and then everyone else got involved networking, everyone else in our core volunteer group inviting organizations and resources in. And now we essentially have this pop-up resource hub every single month at our dinner. So when you come and you access this barrier-free hot meal that was prepared for you by volunteers, by your neighbors in your own community, you also have access to support from the tenant union. We're working on support from uh, labor organizing. We also have the library with all of their myriad of resources. We have the health department. We have harm reduction. We have like 12 different things that are available to folks that otherwise they may have never found out was around that they could access or that they didn't know was a thing, you know, like, like they didn't know that they could go get free plan B if they needed it. Um, 
So that's where we're at right now. And then our projection for the coming year, uh, as naive and optimistic as it sounds, is to try and find a brick and mortar place to operate out of so that we don't have to be at the mercy of landlords and neighboring businesses who don't who don't want us around because we have homeless people coming up to our door to, to get fed or to get help or whatever, you know. Um, so, yeah, and there's a lot more I could say about it. But and I'll also throw in there that some of our um, practices, well, all of our practices have been very emergent since all of us, including myself, this is our first attempt to organize on the ground. Um, and, you know, it's a whole different role from organizing virtually, which is something I've been doing for a few years with people like Marlo here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have to say, knock on wood, it's went really well so far. We've been able to not only feed all these people, we're also instilling um, a legacy of sorts. We're leaving a very big imprint as ACM on our small town. We have been installing a dry pantry street side, which is something our town had not ever experienced or seen before. Uh, well, not, not seen before, but hadn't practiced before. People are absolutely eating it up, pun intended. Um <laughs> Uh, and, and neighboring counties all the way out to West Virginia are asking for them as well. It's made a wonderfully positive impact. Uh, so we've got that going for us. And so, you know, and we got Skillshares um, set up for the future. Like we're trying to we're trying to do a systemic approach also, obviously, uh, you know, encourage people to share their washer and dryers. Um, I, uh, and one thing and I'll shut up now. Um, one of the things I like the most, one of the clearest examples of how this has been successful, though maybe on a small scale, um, is uh, one of the things we do is we have a resource sign-up table. So basically, we'll cover that table in literature, uh, and it's it's, uh, it's as simple as a flyer and a sign-up sheet for each resource or volunteer organization in town. So if you A, need their resources, or B, want to get involved and participate, you can leave your name and information and those people will reach out to you. And as a result of that, one of our dear friends, volunteers, and neighbors here in town by the name of Ruin, she uh, has a place called Gaia's Garden, and she has a yard in and it's the only one in town and everybody freaking loves it. And I love it. And she supplies freshly grown produce to our dinners. Uh, but all that to say, through that resource table practice, she was able to get much needed childcare. I love, love, love that you pointed out that caregiving is number one. That is the most undervalued resource in our society. Uh, she was able to get uh, quality and, and, you know, um, trusting uh, child care. And she was able also to get some helping hands in her garden. And, you know, that fluctuates. Um, and and so that's where I really wonder what we could do different and arguably better uh, so that we have a more consistent way of needing people's uh, meeting ne- people's needs in that way. It's what you're doing sounds incredible. And like you're doing so many of the pieces of what we aspire to. So if I were going to fill in some things. So I'm just going to pretend that you are a sister side of the humans and what that would mean or, or that you are working in this context. What you could do is um, have people, when they're showing up to these things, make it available to them to sign up into mutual aid cooperative and earn hours for their time. So the people who are currently volunteering could earn hours often you get new people. Um, A lot of times in time banking, um, most of the people 
didn't previously volunteer. So a lot of times you like reach just a whole different segment of people than typically volunteer. But if people earned hours, then they they could earn hours preparing the meal. They can go off and find childcare, but they could also just have their imagination take over and have this whole access of, because when you're, when you're doing time banking, when you sign up sort of more formally into the mutual aid network, then you can see all these other offers. So someone might choose to just do something you never would have dreamed of, but care and transportation and companionship tend to be the most commonly traded things, but people also do graphic design and, um, a whole variety of things. So that time banking piece could help to create, sorry about that, uh, could help to create more of the informal support networks that people have agency to pursue on their own. I love how you talked about your work being emergent because that is a beauty of working in this way. And Marlo referenced it too. Like when people start coming together to do things, um, the possibilities just open up because you see all this potential that you didn't have before you came together. So it just opens more possibilities. Um, So the time banking piece can have that resource flow going sort of on a more ongoing basis and a more self-directed basis and can also create some opportunities for different people to see ways that they can connect. So someone who might not normally come and participate in the meal might see a role for themselves. When you were talking before about um, sort of people's comfort zones and how those have shrunk and all that, um, you did refer to the fact that all of all of this kind of practice has been beaten out of us in our mm-hmm. culture, in this dominant culture that I grew up in. You, they put you in school, and you get used to being told what to do and given structure all the time. So our sense of agency sort of has been stripped away. And one of the ways that we started to perceive it is that redesigning work, that using these uh, mutual aid tools to really have it, have people see a role for themselves, have it take on some of, have them take this on as part of their work life. You know, when you're talking about the transactional nature, people realizing, well, I might need to do things I don't totally want to do. Well, there's work in this world that needs to be done that no one totally wants to do or not very many people totally want to do. Um, And, you know, some of the like serious caregiving at some point, I might need someone to wipe my butt. I I don't expect everyone to want to do that. But I hope that when we're creating a spirit of mutual aid and we're really getting into this community vision of reciprocity and um, what's valuable and the social connection, that that will be something that people do for each other. Um, and, and sometimes you need to have an incentive. Sometimes uh, like some of the care networks, there's an, a longstanding care network in Japan where um Furiai Kipu, it's an early version of, or it's a pioneering version of time banking, but people provide care for older people in their own community and typically will give those credits to their 
their parents who live far away. And they've done studies that the level of care people provide is much higher than when they get hired into that situation, especially here, you like get paid eight bucks an hour to do very difficult work. It changes everything when you're equating the care you're giving to the care your parents would get. Um, So it just changes the dynamic. Um, So in going back to your example, another tool of mutual aid that might help is this common fund, which is a way that we've adopted from other communities and adapted where people pool money and govern it. You could create a common fund where people all contribute in so you can get your brick and mortar place and you can do some interesting things. So they have a stake in it um, as a cooperative with clear rights and responsibilities. And we've been working with lawyers and with um, other legal people who are in the cooperative legal realm to really like work through how you create a cooperative stewardship and ownership where the financial capital never takes precedence over the social capital going in. Like you can create ownership structures where contributions of time are valued as much or more than contributions of money. These are all things that exist that we can adapt and play with. And really, oh, and so another way, if you were a member, partner site, sister site of the humans, so you would have access to tools to do that. You would have access to a lot of handholding about how to make it work, learning from the experience of people who've done more of it. And you would be also contributing what you do, how you run your resource fairs, um, as much as you are willing to. So no one has to do anything, but we agree to come into this mutual support realm. So everyone can learn from your experience and, um, and that you can turn around and earn credits of any sort to support another community to get going maybe somewhere close to you. And I did want to mention that um, a community in Appalachia really provided some real inspiration to us in our early days of forming the model. And it is based in religion. Um, So this is one of the things we want to, in the Humans United and Mutual Aid Networks, we want to provide a lot of kinds of community support and feeling and the, um, levels of education that religion does. We want to provide these kinds of spaces without requiring a belief in in a particular entity. In fact, we are very explicit about creating an economy for the 100%. And I can't stress this enough. The 100% is going to include people who think things we don't like, who believe yeah. things we don't like, who do sure. things we don't like. There are people who've committed horrendous acts And everyone's part of the human family. And what I see us needing to do is create avenues where we can come into cooperation with people who think very differently. And we can create avenues of material interdependence and we can create social infrastructure that lifts us all to be our best selves, that helps strip away some of our differences and lets us leave them at the door. Also helps bridge some of our differences because we're interacting with people more that's based on our common values that's based on what you need, what I offer. Um, in in my world with time banking, that was a very, it's one reason that I'm so committed to time banking as a key piece of this is my experience with time banking is coming into that 
network of exchanging as equals changed everything about how I saw myself, my community, other people. And it really does. It really can connect people who wouldn't normally connect. And it really has helped people to see their commonness and, and drop some of what they thought were intractable differences. Beautifully said, beautifully said. And again, I'm just loving, don't mean to create an echo chamber here, loving all the things you're saying. I just have to cling to something really fast, more than in case you are waiting to speak. I just want to say this really quick. Um, You pointed out the fact that uh, we have to find common ground, essentially, is what you're pointing out with even the people that we couldn't breathe the same air with, you know, like we perceive we just could not be in the same room with like if they created some heinous or if they done some heinous act or if they are a Republican or something like that. Like, we don't want to help them. We don't want to be a part of that. We don't want them in our room. And you do have to be careful so that you you don't uh, you basically have to practice harm reduction to some degree when you are trying to create all, all inclusive safe spaces. You do. But on the on the broader sense, you have to be able and willing and know how to navigate that common ground collaboration with the folks that you wouldn't necessarily let into your intimate spaces that you want to keep safe. Um, but all that to say, I think that's a whole other podcast that we could do. The fact that, um, as Martin Luther uh, King Jr. said, what, and I'm paraphrasing, what harms one harms all. We have to remove the moral economy um narrative that we have in in the background about who deserves food and who doesn't, who deserves housing, who doesn't, who, who is a criminal, who done something heinous and doesn't, you know, uh, um, doesn't um, uh, deserve to, to, you know, have these basic needs met. We have to remove that from the narrative in the conversation and especially our action. If we're all ever going to, like the goal is to meet everyone's needs so that the people who do quote unquote deserve it, are taken care of. And then we can deal with that other stuff aside from all of that. We can deal with those other people aside from, uh, you know, getting everyone's needs, needs met, if that makes any sense. Totally. And one of the ways that we have applied mutual aid in, in uh, my practice is in the community justice realm, actually. So we have a lot of experience um, working with people who have criminal charges, um, working with people who are, who are on the other side too, um, who are in policing, who are in, uh, running the jail. We are about bringing all the parties together and figuring out how to solve the problem. And whoever, whatever side of the equation people are on, people all know that, or people all say they realize we have an incarceration problem. So even, you know, people in policing, people running the jail, they know that too many people are being imprisoned and we can find some common ground where we provide the community side. Um, Yeah, so that's a really big piece of of what we do is uh, apply mutual aid. We do a lot of applied mutual aid, like create a Mm -hmm. project that fills a community need using the time and talents of our members as a resource base to do it. Um, And then you're creating that economic flows that help divert some of the things from this uh, the carceral capitalism that we're laboring under. Our economy really is built on mass incarceration. We need to realize that. So we're working on displacing that part of economic life and, you know, creating collaborative relationships uh, to be able to 
have institutions do things differently. And even more, because we're doing this mutual aid economic background stuff, that creates the social networks, uh, the social, economic, educational, recreational opportunities that help keep people doing uh, healthier activities and keep people exactly. out of the criminal system and out of criminal behavior. So it it works on all of it at once. And and that's a thing that I would really like to build up more and more. And um, just by getting wanna... those people's needs met, you're inherently uh, reducing the risk of them ending up incarcerated. But yes. Because when people's needs aren't met, you know, that just goes down another rabbit hole. Uh, the shame, the guilt, the violence that results, um, just just the just the petty crimes that people can end up in jail for, for, for trying to meet their needs, you know. So, yeah. I'm sorry, Marlo, you were you had your hand up. Uh, I was just laughing because um, I was thinking about she, Stephanie was talking about restorative justice. And this, this kind of phrase of restorative design hit me of like not just going into like the individual level of like, for example, a permaculture program that took people coming out of prison and let them work in permaculture farms and ended the recidivism rate, the rate of them going back and doing crimes, just ended it like 80% gone. Or like James Gilligan said, giving people an education ended 100% of the prisoners they gave an education to did not go back to crime. So it's like taking that idea of restoring, you know, of justice through restoration, not through punishment, and applying it to design into going beyond the pop-up resource hub into a, a vision we've been sort of talking about in our chats and, you know, zooming about, <laughs> getting zoomies about dreaming about the better world we know is possible, about creating a resource centers in every community that is a relational hub to channel all of these energies of volunteer work, of working with the city or the state to say, give us all your prisoners, you know, and we'll, we'll give them a beautiful environment to stay in, to live in, like give them good work to do. They'll be working. Trust us. They'll be working. But the work is like go play guitar for an hour, you know, go work in the garden, go cook up some potatoes. You know, it's like, we, we can, you know, bring people from all aspects of society, whether they're homeless, whether they're addicts, we can say, what are the needs of the community. What are the things that this community, regardless of their political affiliation, recognizes are a problem? Appalachia is riddled, as I have know very well, with people who are addicted to drugs, people who have no jobs, people who are homeless, people who are struggling. But there are also people who are just sitting around with fuck all to do because there's no jobs, because the coal industry vaporized. And that those are people that want to work. They want to contribute. And if we could tweak the incentives and create structures and training wheels and bridges for them to jump in to say, hey, you, you, could, you could earn credit or you could turn into somebody working on your car if you go out there and put in some fence posts. posts. You know, I have this, this vision that I would love to do a, a, another episode talking about the sort of next phase of this. Like how do we take this to the – systematic scale to the network scale or just to like what would we do if we had the big funding or if we had the big people around us to pool funds to make this and it's like creating these networks and systems where we're actually creating incentives through a credit system that is like a digital system that creates a digital passport and identity and to gain trust as the real currency underneath the system that allows you to sort of be sort of facilitated by the algorithms to connect you with the people that have the things that you're looking for. Like you are, you have an option, like everything you do in the system increases trust. Just being around other people that are in the system increases your trust. Accepting help increases trust. 
But the thing that increases it the most is going out and doing something without a reciprocal reward. So you go within the credit system, you go fix somebody's car because that's what you do. And you say, actually, my needs are met right now because I'm working through the system because we're using mutual aid in all these different areas. I've got credit here. I've got time hours here. I've got sharing economy here. We've got a commons-based community garden here. My needs are good. I don't actually need this credit right now. You could say in the application, pay it forward. And it could algorithmically go and give that credit to somebody who needs it in this sort of karma system. And so that would increase your trust more than anything. So it's like it creates this incentive, this positive incentive to send people out there just looking for quests to go and help and improve the world. God, I love that. And realize like, oh, fuck, I can help. It sounds like that would feed directly into the reciprocal... um economy that that we ultimately want and 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 make that transactional nature fall away and that pay forward uh mechanism uh and then as you described all these uh, systemic uh approaches of having our needs met abundantly you know it just hopefully you know the hope is at some point it, it 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 becomes a feedback loop that is just as interrupted and just as resilient as the one we live in in this capitalist society um, and, and in doing that, yeah, people have their needs met and they'll understand our value and that it's inherent and that it's going to be there and it's going to, we're going to be able to tap into it as we need, when we need, uh, versus having to set up these transactions and be satisfied right away, which of course is the, the inhumane aspect. Okay. Stephanie, uh, we're right at our time. So I, I, um, this is, this is part one, of course, we'll be back if you're, if you'll have us. You just logged one hour in the Moneyless Society Mutual Aid. <laughs> it's excellent. And you can redeem it as, as, as you choose. But yeah, why don't you bring us home, give us some inspiration, give us a rousing message for the troops. You are a, like a human just beacon of fire. I love your speech. <laughs> I love what you're doing. Thanks. You're so inspirational to me. Give us some, give us the goods. Oh, lovely. Get us on well, out of here. Get I, people to go out there and do it. Well, when you were talking about your, when you just described your vision just now, and when you were talking, Amanda, about your project, what we need is experimenters. Um, Really, this is a network of networks. And Marlo, what you just described would be awesome to have a group of people practice with that. What we're looking to do right now is um, raise the dollar kind of money, the boring old kind of money. We want to raise enough so um, a group of people can have a basic livelihood backstop for a core group of members uh, to build their network how they want to and show how they can display. They'll have that money to be their income if they need it, but they'll show ways that they can displace more and more of it so it can get invested into the future or take it farther. We just need experimenters right now. We need to get some money uh, put into some of the experiments and to put into some of the software development. And more than that, we need to practice with mutual credit, mutual aid, time banking. We have what we need if we share what we have. Any group of four or five, if you go into a group and you ask people to list one of their key needs, you almost always find someone in the same group who can provide for that need, or someone has a family member or close friend who can provide it. A lot of what is needed is already here. So we just need to do it. Um, And then I will just invite people to join in 
with humans um, at mutualaidnetwork.org. We have a solidarity summit every quarter to learn from each other, meet each other. Next one's December 16th and 17th. And we'd really welcome you to come and share about your work and connect with more other people. Um, And it's, it's beyond time. We can remember what it means to be human and start acting on it. So join the human family. That's my Thank you for the invite. (laughs) I'm sure I speak for all of us at BOSO and ACM when I say we'll be there. And we're excited about it. All right. I'm excited about all that you're doing. So I really appreciate this. And I look forward to coming back. Uh, Likewise. Thank you. Thank you for spending time with us this morning and enlightening us on this journey that we're sharing. Do you want to do something about all the issues we talk about here on our show? Do you want to learn more, get involved, and help us help others break out of the cycle? Step one is to join the growing community of rebels and kind hearts sharing their knowledge and passion. Follow Moneyless Society on our social media pages and spread the message to people who need it. When you're ready, you can get involved by reaching out and becoming a Moneyless Society volunteer. We need every skill imaginable, large or small, if we're going to resist the powers destroying our planet. And even if you don't have time to volunteer, you can help us build the dream with donations of any size. We create all of this community and content because it is our passion, but we need resources to get it done. Monthly Patreon donors receive cool perks like early access to future episodes, and visitors to our website, moneylesssociety.com, can buy MoSo shirts and other merchandise that help spread awareness. We're glad you're here, and we hope that you'll keep learning and growing with us. The goal may seem far away, but we can get there together.